Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Banerjee Wright's Chief Executive Kathy Payne about the distribution giant's first MIPCOM as a combined entity since acquiring Endemol Shine, the addition to the business of Beyond International and how fast channels and financial volatility are impacting the industry. And from the C21 team, as we look ahead to this weekend's MIP Junior in Cannes and the main confab starting Monday. MIPCOM 2022 gets underway in Cannes next week, with Kids Forum MIP Junior taking place this weekend, with both events expected to be booming once again after a period of pandemic-induced cancellations and scale-back gatherings. France-headquartered production and distribution giant Banerjee is gearing up for its first visit to the market as a combined entity following the 2020 takeover of Endemol Shine Group, and in a moment we'll be hearing from distribution chief Cathy Payne. But first, Channel 21 international editor Nico Franks, North American editor Jordan Pinto and C21 Kids editor Carolina Kaminska spoke with me about the stories and themes they see shaping this year's confabs. Among the topics under discussion were Banerjee's buyout of Beyond International, the launch of new US distributor Fox Entertainment Global, ongoing job cuts at Warner Brothers Discovery and the continued interest in television from private equity. Nico, I guess it's, it's the first major MIPCOM since the pandemic, so um, I guess we're talking about a kind of a, a three-year kind of gap, really. There was, there was last year's event, which was very much a kind of pared-down occasion. You were in attendance at that, and there was MIP TV in April as well. Again, quite a small affair, but uh, the market's really back in 2022. Yeah, both those events were quite tentative, kind of dips back into the water, and I think people really enjoyed MIPCOM last year especially because the weather was amazing and everyone was just so um, you know pleased and appreciative of being and you know traveling because I think for a lot of people it was their first event back. I think this year it will be a lot different people have you know got used to traveling again and it's very much you know business is returning and I think yeah this MIPCOM is going to be absolutely huge just in terms of the amounts of uh, people attending and events scheduled, cocktails, parties, things like that. I mean, yeah, um, so Banerjee weren't there last year, but they are going to be there this year. And they've got, you know, they've made a big um, splash about their stand that's very kind of eco-friendly, which is always good to hear. And yeah, I think just, just them alone, they're bringing over 125 executives to the event um, via their various kind of subsidies and business units. So that kind of just speaks to the absolute scale not only of that company but in terms of the amount of people who are going to be attending i think um yeah it's going to be a busy one so yeah you mentioned balanjay there um marco bassetti the chief executive is going to be among the the keynote speakers and uh for that company it's the first major presence that they've had there as a combined entity with Endemol Shine. Um, they've just announced recently the uh, the acquisition of uh, Beyond International and no doubt there's, there's plenty more to come from them as well. There was even suggestions at one stage just recently that they might be in the running to acquire uh, MCS, the uh, the French broadcaster which RTL put up for sale after its sort of planned merger with, with TFN was uh, kicked into the long grass by regulators. Um, an awful lot going on in the French market and that deal in particular will have uh, or lack of a deal will have will have caused a lot of uh, conversations which no doubt are going to continue in Cannes. Yes yeah I don't I think MC um, so that's going to stay in RTL's hands now uh, but that yeah the fact that that 
merger won't happen. Um, I think some uh, observers in France have been caught, you know, comparing it to when the UK regulator stepped in to stop, I think it was called Project Kangaroo, um, a, a, over a decade ago uh, to prevent them kind of creating a, a unified VOD service, you know, before Netflix and others had made a big splash in the territory. And I think with hindsight, that was seen as a bit of a mistake and it allowed the streamers to really get a foothold. And um, so, yeah, that some people were saying that this, you know, lack of ability by MCs and TF1 to combine their their power to take on the streamers. So them not being able to do that um, kind of plays into the hands of the streamers. But then I suppose there's others who would say, you know, more channels the better really, because, you know, just having one, well, one main commercial buyer in France uh, that that would create, you know, wouldn't necessarily be a great thing for people selling shows. But yeah, the keynotes tend not to get into too much granular detail. Um, so that probably won't come up. But yeah, I think among the kind of cocktails, um, that's what people will be talking about. You mentioned the keynotes there. Other, other prominent speakers include BBC Studios Chief Executive Tom Fussell and BBC Director General Tim Davey. We've also got Fremantle Chief Executive Jennifer Mullen and Continental Europe Chief Executive Andreas Grassati. Charlie Collier, the Chief Executive of Fox Entertainment, was due to speak as well, but he's moving over to Roku now uh, and Rob Wade's taking over. And the company is using MIP to launch Fox Entertainment Global. So that's a rare example of a US studio in today's landscape moving into um, third-party licensing. Jordan, you were due to, to speak to Charlie. You're also going to be speaking to, uh, to Rod. And, and um, ahead of time, you've, you've also spoken to the new head of Fox Entertainment Global. So um, can you tell us about, uh, about that? Yeah, I think the, the Fox Entertainment keynote should be interesting partly because of what seems to have happened behind the scenes or, you know, Charlie exit, exiting the role and um, Rob Wade uh, being appointed as CEO of Fox Entertainment. Um, as you said, I, th I think they'll be very keen to talk about um, Fox Entertainment Global, which is their new um, international distribution unit, but also a co-production, um, kind of a co-production arm as well. Um, and so at the market, they'll be, they're bringing a, a small-ish, slate of um of fox entertainment global series um a, a pair of adult animation series and a live action comedy i think that they'll be looking for firstly to, to sell those projects and get those out there in front of buyers but also and this is something fernando was really stressing was that they really want to um as they re-enter the the international tv marketplace they really want to get some co-productions going with international partners and those would be anchored by the the Fox um, broadcast network in the US, but but essentially they'll be operating as a as a as a co as a co-producer um, and looking to to um, to co-commission pretty large-scale projects in the international market. And so yeah, that, that will be it'll be interesting to see how they get on in, in that regard. Um, Fernando, when I spoke to him last week, was was extremely bullish. Um, one of the things he was emphasizing is that they won't be beholden to placing any of that content on specific um, streaming services so that they'll have a bit more a bit more flexibility in the market um, as fernando tells it so yeah F fernando chev he, he came to the company through fox's acquisition of mar vista which was um you know obviously a, a major player on the international distribution stage for some time largely focusing though on on, on films is that right Correct. Yes. Yeah. Fernando Chev came in um, into the Fox ecosystem when Fox acquired 
Uh, Marvista, it was last December they acquired um, Marvista. Fernando was actually telling me that this is part this for, for Fox, this has been part of a, a long-term strategy. So they, they acquired um, Tubi a couple of years ago. Um, they acquired Bento Box, which is the animation studio about three years ago. And um, with all those pieces being in place, I think the timing was right for them to uh, launch this Fox Entertainment Global arm. Basically, there's now a kind of critical mass of owned content that they're able to sell globally, but also they have the, the infrastructure. And Fernando has a lot of, um, he has a ton of connections in the international marketplace anyway from his from his work uh, over the past 20 years through Marvisa. And so they're hoping to get co-production partnerships going pretty promptly. And so, as I was saying, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a rare example of a U.S. player that sort of, well, was was sort of part of the uh, the old studio system, opening up or setting up a a licensing business and and you know looking to sell to to third parties. Whereas obviously, the trend that we've seen over the last few years has been the U.S. studios launching their own streamers and warehousing their content, you know, within their own walls to to feed those streamers. But there are sort of hints from elsewhere within the industry that perhaps. Uh, there's a bit of a shift taking place there too. Definitely. Um, I don't think, or maybe we won't see it at this year's MIPCOM, but Warner Brothers Discovery have definitely been talking about um, ramping up third-party licensing efforts with the argument argument being that they have this giant catalogue um, that the new management feels is very underutilized um, under the previous management, especially with um, Warner Media CEO Jason Kylar. The, the ethos and the strategy was very much to to keep the content for HBO Max. Um, obviously, David Zaslav and his team have come in now, and they believe that they're they're leaving a lot of money on the table by not by not you know licensing all of this content out. And so that that shift will happen at some point. It, it's something that the CFO um, Gunnar Wiedenfels has talked about, and he said it will definitely be happening. We we aren't sure exactly when when we might actually see that on the stands themselves. Um, but I think Warner Brothers Discovery will will certainly, for a number of reasons, be ones to watch at, uh, at this year's MIPCOM. And a number of other distributors as well from outside the, the, the studio system beginning to license, we seem to be seeing uh, more streamer original content. Yeah, I, I think this year's um, lineups or MIPCOM slates from the, from the traditional distributors has been really interesting. I think we're seeing on their slates, there are many shows that are now either co-commissioned by streaming services um, or the, or they're licensed by streamers in the first window. And just a few of the examples, um, All Three Media is selling the Western drama miniseries called The English, which stars Emily Blunt. Um, that one is debuting on Amazon Prime in the US. Um, Cineflix Rights is selling the Paramount Plus Australian original, The Last King of the Cross, um, starring Tim Roth. Um, and Cineflix Rights is also selling an Amazon original movie called Sugar. Um, and just a couple of other examples, um, Boat Rocker is selling the Roku original Slip. Um, and then Blue Ant is just is distributing um, Prince Andrew Banished, uh, which is a Peacock original in the US. And I'm sure there are plenty of other examples that I'm missing. Um, but it certainly seems to be more prevalent than in years gone by that you have these international distributors that are basically finding one territory where a show has been commissioned by a streamer, but the, the distributor is then taking that show internationally and selling it. Um, and it, it struck me as interesting because there was a period maybe three years ago when I think it looked like the market was heading to a place where everything would be a worldwide buyout and everything would be all rights. Um, and I think the fear at the time was that the, the role of the distributor might be minimized in that environment. 
but I think as things have started to shift, I think we're realizing that distributors and um, and streamers can kind of work together more closely than perhaps would previously have been imagined. You mentioned Warner Brothers Discovery earlier on. Obviously, it's it's hard to ignore what's going on there. Uh, you've written a piece for the magazine as well about the job cuts that have taken place. And uh, as we speak, they're, they're continuing to happen, the sort of rationalization of the business there. So, um, you know, any sense as to what their presence is going to be like? And, um, you know, what impact is that having on the marketplace? I, to be honest, I'm not I'm not 100% sure what their what their presence will be like. I, I would imagine it would be similar to what it would have been in in previous years. I would imagine they want to, especially in Europe. I, I think things are more. I think some of the structural changes have, have are slightly more fully formed in Europe, if if that makes sense. In the US, like even yesterday, you know, we're still seeing a lot of um, pretty pretty large uh, layoffs um, across the the television group. Um, two months ago, we had uh, the layoffs at Casey Ploys, uh, HBO Max, and HBO teams as well. It, I think it, it'll be interesting to see what they do. To be honest, I, I've spoken to a few people, and it seems a bit of a TBD. So uh, I think it'll be a case of you know, going there and seeing with your own eyes what what the state of play is. Carolina, Warner Brothers Discovery, obviously Cartoon Network, Boomerang, major players in the kids' space as well. MIP Junior is happening over the weekend. Um, you know, what's your kind of uh, overview of, of uh, MIP Junior this year and some of the key themes that are going to be under discussion? Yeah, so as Nico said with, with MIPCOM, um, I think um, a big turnout is going to be expected for MIP Junior this year following last year's uh, event that was still impacted by COVID. I was at Annecy and Cartoon Forum this year, both um, also big kids events, um, which both recorded record numbers of attendees. Um, so I think this year's MIP Junior is going to be a busy one. With respect to Warner Brothers Discovery, I think it will be interesting to see um, specifically with HBO Max, what um, that streamer and, and the other global streamers are going to be in the market for at this year's MIP Junior. Um, since we've seen HBO Max and also Netflix earlier this year cancelling um, multiple animated projects um, as budgets tighten and, and streamers like Netflix have suffered subscriber losses, which has been a bit of a downer for some production companies. So I think it will be quite interesting to see what their plans are at the market and what, what they're going to be looking for. Um, this year's keynote is going to be uh, presented by Cecilia Person, who is MD of BBC Studios Kids and Family. And that is a division that launched earlier this year when BBC Children's in-house production arm was integrated into BBC Studios Productions. Um, so she'll be talking about her plans and her strategy for the division um, and roles she's recruit recruiting for as well because they are expanding the team and attempting to increase um, their international reach as well so they can develop international brands. It's, it kind of, on that note, seems to be that, you know, these days it's not really enough just to make a TV show anymore for some producers. It's more about making brands and franchises. Um, I'm always hearing the phrase 360 experience um, as they like to call it, by creating these brands and franchises that encompass LM activities as well. Um, I spoke to Cecilia Person for the C21 Kids MIP magazine, and she spoke about the division's focus on animation, high-end drama and factual, but she did stress that they are looking for all kinds of ideas in a variety of, of different genres. 
looking at other trends, I think we're probably going to see a fair amount of young adult programming at this MIP Junior. Teenagers and young adults have always been a bit of an elusive demographic that's been quite difficult to produce for. Um, but more and more YA series are popping up, um, particularly in short form. On that young adult trend, I was at Connext in Antwerp uh, in October very recently and I was speaking to some people there and one of the things they mentioned was uh, a new genre called new adult because young adults now are, so they're even younger than kind of maybe what, what we actually think. So that's kind of what would be maybe the, the 12 to 15 year old audiences now, at least in publishing terms, what a young adult book is aimed at and then new adult is, you know, 16 and above basically, which is slightly scary thinking that a young adult is now a 13 year old but yeah that's apparently how things are going um so potentially yeah that might be a, a genre that we're going to hear more about yes and um, um and this week um c21 revealed the exclusive news that beta film is showcasing its kids and family slate at mip junior for the first time ever and a big proportion of that slate is is young adult dramas and i think it it, it kind of goes hand in hand with an increase in virtual content and things like gaming and the metaverse which tv companies are getting more involved in um, as teenagers are heavily involved in in gaming and, and immersive content so I'm sure we will also see the presence of lots of companies that are working in, in gaming and virtual spaces as well. Um, I was at Cartoon Forum last month and there were loads of gaming companies there and I spoke to quite a few producers and broadcasters as well like BBC Children's and RTE in Ireland who said that they're taking the metaverse really seriously and um, trying to include content that's in the metaverse in their offering so that they can stay relevant with the, with the kids of today. Um, and the metaverse was also the subject of a feature that I wrote about in, in the C21 Kids mag. Yeah, I mean, it's a big play for, for Fox Entertainment as well at the market. Um, Crapopolis, which they're going to be selling down there, is, is a major uh, metaverse uh, property, I believe, for them as well. They're sort of selling virtual chickens and things like that, sort of tied to the, tied to the series. And there's all sorts of uh, means for fans to engage in these shows through tokens and exclusives like that. I mean, Nico, have you been looking much into this space in the metaverse as well? Yeah, it popped up in the, uh, in the in the fall issue of uh, Channel 21, which yet yeah, will be available at MIPCOM. So I was writing a feature all about immersive experiences based on TVIP, and uh, they're becoming more and more popular kind of hand in hand with the rise of uh, something called competitive socialising, which is things like escape rooms and things like that. And it's just opening up another revenue stream, you know, the kind of revenue stream that Disney's been doing for for decades, um, you know, with their theme parks, but now it's offering companies like Banerjee to do things uh, with IP like Peaky Blinders, and I think Black Mirror will be will be next, and Netflix in particular is really keen on these. I don't know if anyone else has been getting uh, bombarded with ads for Stranger Things, immersive experiences and things like that. Um, but what surprised me about those interviews that I did was um, a lot of the people behind these experiences were quite damning of virtual reality and the use of headsets. And I do think that is going to be the kind of ultimate stumbling block for the metaverse because I just don't think people like wearing these headsets. They feel cut off. And I think there's just something innate in how humans don't like to not be able to see who's behind them or what they just, I think that's just going to prevent the VR incarnation of the metaverse from taking off, particularly with kids, because obviously 
no one really wants to see kids, um, you know, wearing, kids in gaming is fine, but kids wearing headsets and things like that, you know, it's still not proven, you know, whether or not, yeah, it's probably not good for them. So, yeah, I think that's a stumbling block. There's always an interesting point in the palais somewhere where there's some VR headsets set up and, you know, various people milling around and trying them out. But, yes, um, the dark corners of the palais. Dark corners of the palais, we'll have to peer into those. Yeah, which was closed off, actually. The bunker was, that's, that's something that will be new for this year uh, compared to, to October uh, MIPCOM. I think MIPTV in April, yeah, the bunker wasn't available just because uh, there's no fresh air down there. But um, I think, you know, these days I think people can... Uh, Maybe wear a mask down there. So bringing it back to, to, to the rest of the magazine content, um, you know, and, and the real world beyond the virtual one, um, you know, what else have been the, uh, the main subjects that we've been focusing on in the magazine? So, yes, there's been, um, as part of our regular uh, content business trends report, some of which we've already covered, you know, in terms of M&A activity, um, but also things like um, the trend for reboots and creativity, um, the various union battles that are going on in TV markets around the world. We were writing about Denmark again this week and what's happening there. Um, sports rights and streaming, and obviously the big battle between um, Amazon and HBO in terms of the Lord of the Rings series and the Game of Thrones spin-off House of the Dragon. And yes, lots of that. So make sure, yeah, to pick up a a copy down in Cannes and we've also got a feature about the latest coming out from producers in Ukraine and that's also the subject of a session at 10am on Wednesday so that's going to be uh, Ukrainian producers talking about you know their experiences in 2022 and how the international TV community can continue to to support them because they're just yeah they're very keen not to be looked upon as a charity case they want people to want to work with them and they should because there's some great producers, great content creators in Ukraine and the stories they, they produce are, are fantastic. You mentioned just there as well the M&A activity that um, you know, continues to, to go on. We talked about Beyond International being bought by Banerjee. Um, you know, there's lots of private equity investment swilling around the business still as well. You know, Simon Cowell's Psycho's just secured $125 million, I think it is. France's Newen Studios has, has bought Anagram in Scandinavia and Federation Studios also in France acquired the UK's Vertigo Films recently. Um, Jordan, you've written a piece covering um, some of these deals and, and the money that, that still continues to, uh, to flood into the TV business. What's your key takeaways from that piece, having spoken to a number of the key players? Yeah, key takeaways would be, firstly, that um, the M&A market seems like it's going to continue to be red hot. And, and maybe people always say that, but I think certainly that that will continue to be the case for the next 12 months. Um, there's a few kind of interlocking factors, I think. Um, one of the things I heard mentioned was that um, the kind of continued weakening of the UK pound um, means that a lot of British companies are attractive acquisition targets um, for international buyers at the moment. And then just on the, on the private equity front, e even though we're seeing all this talk about you know, belt tightening across the industry, I think private equity companies in particular are still very bullish on um, the kind of long-term um, growth of the, of the streaming market. They're not looking specifically at what one particular streaming service is doing. They're looking at what the streaming services are commissioning in its totality and seeing that the, the, um, the investment is, is continuing. 
Um, I, I think some of the high profile private equity uh, deals that we've seen over the past um, 12 months, most of these ones that people will know of, but I'll just rattle a few of them off. Um, Kevin Hart's production company, Heartbeat, um, secured 100 million in investment from a Boston-based company called Abri Partners. Um, of course, everything that's going on with Blackstone, which backs uh, Kevin Mayer and Tom Stagg's Candle Media. Um, they've obviously done things like buy Moonbug Entertainment. Um, but then there are other things like um, Peter Chernin's The North Road Company. That, that was um, They acquired Red Arrow Studios US assets over the summer. Um, and that was backed by um, a, a private equity investment uh, from a company called Providence Equity Partners. And there are many others. Um, so I, I think we'll continue to see a lot more investment from uh, private equity firms. I think that's definitely a trend to watch. Um, it's uh, maybe it's, it's been a trend to watch for uh, maybe eighteen months now, but I think it will definitely continue to be, um, according to uh, yeah, a lot of people I spoke to for for that magazine story. France-headquartered production and distribution giant Banerjee is gearing up for its first MIPCOM as a combined entity following the 2020 takeover of Endemol Shine Group and will be in Cannes with over 130,000 hours of programming. A tally set to grow further following the recently proposed buyout of Australia's Beyond International. Bolstered after going public on the Amsterdam Euronext this summer as part of new entity FL Entertainment, the Beyond Purchase will add another 8,000 hours of shows including Discovery Channel unscripted hits Mythbusters and Highway Through Hell to the Banerjee sales catalogue. Banerjee Wright's chief executive Cathy Payne spoke to me about returning to Cannes with greater firepower, how fast channels and financial volatility are impacting the industry and why the revival of classic formats like Big Brother and Survivor by no means signal a dearth of creativity. It's been three years since Banerjee exhibited at MIPCOM and um, your first major market since the acquisition of Endemol Shine. So uh, a lot of change. How significant a moment is this for you and uh, for the company? Well, I think it's a time when the company, Banerjee, can come together and be together and to exhibit our company as a, a combined entity. As you said, we haven't been to Cannes in force for three years. And if you look three years ago, we were exhibiting, I was there as Endemol and Banerjee was there in the form of Banerjee Rights. So it's great to be together and to think that we made it through that time and that the company has grown. And yeah, it, it will be really exciting. It's good to see clients. I think it's great to be able to see not just your clients, but also all your competitors and be in that environment. No doubt, because there hasn't been a global market of this size in the television world for a number of years, a lot of people are attending who may not always attend, and, but it still certainly is the global place to be. And the event comes just a few months after Banerjee floated on the Euronext exchange and that obviously gave you further firepower and you've, you've just uh, announced the acquisition of Beyond International as well. That's the latest addition to the business, but there's been a few other deals over the past few months as well mm -hmm. with Sony Pictures, Television Germany and uh, Italy's Groenlandia also joining the fold. So just talk us through that process and, you know, again, what that means for the business and, and what that's going to sort of arm you with. Um, as, as you go to MIPCOM? Well, I think, uh, you know, just to clarify that uh, floating on the stock exchanges of the parent company of Banerjee, Banerjee itself is not. It's the, the parent company 
correct name, FL Entertainment. Uh, it's there. But the reason they did that is that Banerjee was a well-resourced company when they brought in Demol. The, the company had been run well financially, but taking this next step and their financial position allowed them to do so just gives them more, more power to grow the business and more access to, to resources to do that, you know, to the capital uh, required to do that. And yes, uh, there has been a, a number of acquisitions that have joined the fold. You mentioned the deals in Germany and Italy, and there was also Poughkeepsie in Spain that is, uh, has joined. And yes, we just announced our intention to enter an agreement with Beyond. Of course, that's subject to closing, uh, which will take a number of months, and there's various formal processes that have to be followed. Uh, but it's a symbol of we wish to grow when we see that there's strength in, in us becoming bigger and stronger. What more can you tell us about the Beyond deal at this stage? As you say, it's a, uh, an agreement to buy the company, so the transaction hasn't closed. But you know, what does Beyond Rights, for example, look like beyond this? Because um, I can see that they're, they're still continuing to hire people, but presumably that's going to be folded within Banerjee Rights. Well, at this stage, we're both operating business as normal, which we, we have to do. And uh, obviously, following all the due process and you know both businesses are separate. I would say that with Beyond, I mean, the that deal was only signed last week. So they're running their business as normal. So I they did announce that they were hiring someone, that that would have happened before the business, you know, before the deal was closed. And I really can't comment too much on that because that sits in in their business. Uh, no doubt when the deal closes, there will be a, a process of integration, but as always, uh, there will be processes, we're always fair, we're always transparent. And what attracted us to Beyond, Beyond is a production business and distribution, is that we thought the catalogue complemented our catalogue. They had a particular focus on uh, a lot of factual entertainment, uh, and that was very attractive to us. So it's a good complement. Obviously, one catalogue is a lot bigger than the other, but like in any integration or whenever you buy a company, you only get the best if you really take the best from both companies. So yeah, so that's all I can kind of really comment on. But as with all the businesses, when uh, Banerjee acquired Endemol, and that was a little different because that was a much smaller company acquiring a bigger company. Likewise, I think we could see as Banerjee moved through that uh, process, they were fair and they looked to achieve the best result uh, in the business. When you've got a, a company on the scale of, of Banerjee Rise, you've now got a catalogue of over 130,000 hours. I think mm-hmm. it is sourced from more than 120 production companies. I mean, you know, A, how do you kind of keep mm-hmm. track of all those programmings and, um, you know, ensure that the newer titles get exposure beyond the juggernauts like Big Brother, mm-hmm. MasterChef and Survivor? And, and B, how do you still see that there's gaps in that catalogue? Because I would have thought it's fairly extensive. Well, there, there are certain gaps in the catalogue that we are genres that we would like to get stronger in, i.e. factual entertainment was one of those big areas that Why Beyond was attractive. The one thing we have, and, and I sound like a real geek when I say this, we started rights management, dare I say, in 1997. So we've had a really good rights management system that we've enhanced. 
sensed as the world has changed, as distribution, as rights have changed, and we've always had a dedicated team that looks after our rights management. Any system is only as good as the quality of the information being inputted into it and the integrity of the of the system. And we've always had strong processes on how we record those rights we have to license, clearance, sales approvals. So we can very easily know what we've got to sell to anyone, you know, anyone buyer, anyone territory at any particular time. And, you know, the the world is a big place. Uh, There's a lot of different needs out there for catalogues, not only the new programming, but what we call, you know, the catalogue, the returning or the the older titles. And, yeah, we're very active in exploiting. So I think there's a constant, you could say the same thing about Disney or Warner Brothers or, or, you know, you've got uh, Warner Media Discovery Disney who bought other assets, when you have a good machine that can exploit content, it's easy to feed it into that that way. We also do a lot of self-publishing. I think we're one of the leaders in both self-publishing on an individual title basis or on fast channels whether that's licensing to own and operated services or syndicating our own channels. And you'd be surprised, I think, that you will, you know, we now quote that it's it's over 35,000 hours of content we ourselves are self-publishing, as well as licensing that. You've got to have a really good system and you have to not just for the rights, but for all the materials, for the metadata, for everything you need. And if you set that up on the way in, then you can exploit going forward. But obviously, we have titles where metadata didn't exist, but older titles that have a valuable life in a uh, catalogue uh, situation, well, yes, we've had to create that metadata and so forth. And you've been expanding in that fast channel space quite uh, rapidly as well, yeah. I believe. We have added some, some maybe some channel managers and some editors, but uh, since we did the, the integration of NML Shine within Banerjee, that team is that that team there who run those channels. I think we had published an awful lot of material as Endemol. So we had a lot of experience. A lot was published before the, the self-publishing area was integrated with the rest of the distribution. There was a more approach of let's put it up there and see what works. I think when you combine the editorial focus of the sales team who knew the product very well with the ability to self-publish, we got a great response because we were following, you know, an editorial approach, which in my experience always works best. What I mean by that is if a program didn't work in its first cycle, if it, you know, unfortunately didn't find the audience, it usually doesn't work in the next cycle as a general rule. How does the expansion of that fast channels business change the conversations with buyers? Presumably it makes things a little bit more complicated. Uh, not Not really, because what you tend to exploit in the fast channel space is your catalogue. I don't like using the word back catalogue because, you know, some of our most successful catalogue, while it might be older, the material's been upgraded, re-enhanced, and, you know, people watch it because they like it. And that type of product normally lives in a world where it's licensed to everybody on a non-exclusive basis. So we don't really have an issue with that. Now, when you have the, the fast space, it's linear streaming on VOD, the way you really get your economies of scale is you have your clear channels and then they're syndicated on platforms. So our leading fast channel, you will find that on numerous platforms. It's on over 
probably on eight to 10 platforms now, that same channel. And that gives you your scale. So tell us about the the MIPCOM slate, some of the highlights from that and um, what those shows say, both about Banerjee and, you know, the wider mm-hmm. business right now and, and what you think buyers are looking for. Well, we've got quite a range of uh, product. There's always a lot to talk about, but I'll focus on the scripted titles. If we look at uh, what's leading our scripted slate, you've got from Kudos, which was an Endemol production company that joined the fold. Rogue Heroes, which will be known as SAS Rogue Heroes in the UK for the BBC. That is a really, really big, ambitious piece. And I think that speaks for the ambition and kind of being brave. There's sometimes you just have to take a bet. It's written by uh, Steve Knight based on Ben McIntyre's book. And it's an amazing story. And to think that that was filmed during COVID is unbelievable. So I think, you know, it was an idea. It got really realised in the worst time ever that you'd think, I'm going to move a whole lot of people to Morocco to film during the COVID pandemic. Uh, But they did it and it's come together wonderful. And then you look at uh, a company from uh, Banerjee Studios, France and Kappa, we've got Marie Antoinette, uh, which is made for Canal Plus. And that is obviously a French production. It's filmed in English and it's very ambitious. It's telling the story of Marie Antoinette, the story that a lot of the world don't know. There's one view of Marie Antoinette and this is her full full story from a young princess coming to the Palace of Versailles. So it is the production team who did Versailles reunited to do Marie Antoinette and it's Deborah Davies who is the writer and the showrunner and who did the the Oscar darling, the favourite uh, film. And then if you look at from the third party perspective, we've got, and we work with a lot of third parties. They're not just internal companies. We have uh, Riches, which is from Greenacre, which is for ITV and Amazon that will launch uh, later this year, which is a great family drama set around the world of a makeup and hair company that caters for uh, the black population. And it's a really meaty family drama, new family or the fat or the children from the uh, kind of the leader of the family from his first marriage go head to head with the new wife and the new family's children over who's going to run this empire following his uh, sudden death. But it's really entertaining. Uh, so, yeah, there's just three of those scripted uh, shows, but we have a real wealth of, of product coming. In unscripted, TFO in France is bringing back Star Academy, ITV's mm. rising Big Brother and the BBC's resurrecting Survivor. So I'm sure you'll tell me that there are others as well around the world. But um, certainly in the UK, there's been a sort of a debate reignited recently recently mm. about reboots and the extent to which they're sort of squeezing out innovation perhaps and and and, and you know what what's your take on that well my flip side to to that is they're only coming back because audiences like them and it takes work and innovation to keep a franchise fresh and if you keep doing the same thing year after year the programs don't come back and I think when you see Big Brother on ITV when that comes uh, next year it will look very different from the Big Brother we first knew all those years ago on on Channel 4 uh, and you will see how shows have reinvented themselves and I do know there's been criticism about that but the long-running shows the only reason they're being commissioned is because they deliver audiences if the audiences weren't there that they wouldn't 
and everything it needs a period of rest and and creative renewal. But we do have new shows coming in new IP. You know, we've got a big uh, new show coming from Australia called Love Triangle. It's a big new format created uh, with our production company in Australia in in conjunction with uh, a local platform there. And, you know, that's a big piece for us. You know, we had Blow Up that uh, came out in Netherlands this year. That's new IP. So I sometimes think saying that a reboot is replacing opportunities for new IP doesn't really recognise the creative renewal that's needed to keep those franchises fresh. And if they weren't working or they weren't a good bet, they simply wouldn't get ordered, in particular when you're talking about the number of shows we've mentioned, because they're very big setup costs. So if, if you're doing Survivor uh, in a territory for the first time, that's considerable setup costs to, to film it. If you're doing Big Brother, you know, you've got the, ha- the cost of the house and so forth. So that's my view on that comment. And I do note, I thought it was funny when Charlotte Moore said, isn't the, one of the most successful shows on Channel 4, The Bake Off? I've been so busy the last few weeks, I haven't watched The Bake Off. And for me, that's a big thing. I do quite like The Bake Off. Why I like it, I've never baked myself, but it's something about the environment of them all living together, competing together, and the hosts are hilarious. Uh, it's feel-good television as well. I mean, yeah, what's your sort is. of sense among buyers at the moment as well, you know, in terms of the kinds of mm. programs that they are looking for, given the kind of the world that we're yeah. living in at the moment, post-COVID, depending on how you look at it, but obviously with the war in the, in Ukraine still raging, and, and that's had an impact on business as well. But from the commissioners and, and, and you know, program buyers perspective, the audience, you know, is, is there a sort of sense that people want a bit of sort of lighter hearted programming or is Scandi Noir still as popular as ever? Uh, well, I think all programming, all genres are popular when you get it right and when it, it works uh, well. I do think people have enjoyed, they like to, you know, there, there is that relief. There is a lot going on in the world at the moment. So I think this time of year too, as you're coming into winter in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, there's that something comfort about those shows uh, coming back. But I think the whole comedy drama, no doubt, it's not one of our shows, but you've got to look at success of shows like Ted Lasso and people enjoy it. It's funny. You know, it's funny and it's it's warm and you think that they're just good shows. But people like, you know, good crime shows. They look like big fantasy shows, but they like in the end of the day, they watch the shows that deliver for them that are good. Uh, definitely, I don't think thrillers have gone or Scandi Noir's gone. It, it, you know, there'll be titles that come and kind of break through to that, you know, what will be that new version of of uh, Braun or any of those other big shows. Obviously, a lot's changed in the last few years. And since we last spoke, sort of pre-pandemic, there's been a massive shift in the industry towards streaming. All the Hollywood studios have, have launched their own services. And there's been a sort of an intense period where they've been sort of ring-fencing content um, for their own streamers. But it seems like that may be easing up a little bit. There's sort yeah. of Fox Entertainment Global launching at MIT. What, what do those shifts mean for, for Banerjee? Well, I think Banerjee's always been platform channel agnostic we work with with everyone uh, we have a, a broad catalog and we have a catalog that has strong domestic market focus so we in major markets we have a big domestic catalog uh, of product as well uh, I do think that if you look at 
say Disney in particular, the model has always been, if you go back to any of the studios, that you need to, you know, you have that pie of available rights and to fully exploit an asset, you've got to look at how you window rights across the pie of rights. So I'm sure as as all the streaming businesses now, you know, they're all calm and how they consolidate and how they grow, they will look at revenue sources from, from other windows and they will look at how, what might be exclusive on their platform for a period of time and then what might be released for sale to other broadcasters and you know especially linear broadcasters I just think to maximize the model you of an asset that's what you need to do and and kind of I kind of feel the more things have changed the more we're going back to the way they were you know carriage deals or the big carriage cable networks and now carriage is done by the big VOD platforms who offer carriage deals for the small platforms and we look at how we window titles but for us our business hasn't changed in whom we sell to we've seen a huge amount of growth in what I call domestic streamers. So those who need product drive, it's really specifically focused on their on their home markets. And we have a lot of catalogue that serves those. So you've heard some of the platforms talk about product that they might commission that is really attracting subscribers and then product that they license and they may have it on a non-exclusive basis, which is really, they might as well have it on their platform. So someone doesn't leave their platform to watch it on another platform, in particular with catalogue product. So in the catalogue product, we do a lot of our licensing to the platforms on a non-exclusive basis. How's the turbulence that we're seeing in the global financial markets impacting business, you know, and and how do you expect things to change in in the coming months moving into next year? Well, I do think there's, there's certainly pressure on you know, household spending. We've had pressure, uh, cost of living rises everywhere. I've just been through all our strategic meetings with the group. Everyone's got the, the cost of living increases and a big part of that is because of energy, um, you know, the situation we're in and you can see governments are trying to help on the energy side. But no doubt people will be making choices around discretionary spending. They will be. And so, you know, if you're a family and and how many subscription services will you need uh, during this period? So I think people need to make those choices. Uh, in terms of our business, you've got the additional costs that are going into production that need to be financed, but people still need content to put on the, put on the services. It is interesting in the last few months when I look at a number of our viewership on some of our uh, revenue share deals, which is predominantly AVOD services, how viewing in, in certain of those platforms has increased where people may be looking at that as opposed to having a subscription. But no doubt there's challenges, there's financial exchange rate variances, we've had the pound here, there. But remember, as a global company, we produce shows all across the world. So that does give you to a certain extent some hedging against exchange rates. But it's something that, you know, we will have to live with. Everybody's tightening their belts to a, you know, to a certain extent. And you're going to have a new eco-friendly standard yeah. NIP. So, yeah. you know, why was that so important? And, you know, how will the company be taking some of the lessons learned during COVID forwards? Well, one of the, our big pillars of the business and these cover areas of equality, diversity, and uh, one is sustainability. And we really work very hard in our general 
general business. For example, when we moved back into the office, there's no single-use plastic. There's no all the water comes from a, you know, from a water tap uh, as such. We print very limited materials now and it's all on recycled material. And we really look into what is really recyclable when we look at our our printing and, and so forth. And it's important to us. I think that whole thing about being responsible for your carbon footprint, I think following COVID, one thing people are doing is being more mindful about what travel they need to do and what is, you know, being kind of responsible. And I don't think anyone wants any uh, unnecessary waste. So, you know, we've built a stand that is all from, you know, it's built very well. It's from natural material. It closes down. It doesn't take a lot to put it up. It's easy to store and it will last us for many years. And that's just important to us. You know, we've always had in MasterChef for many years, you either boil, you bake it or blend or the leftovers from MasterChef. You know, on MasterChef productions, we try to get down to zero waste with food. And that's just one, one example. But every one of our productions has a policy to look at being, you know, sustainable. And there's different schemes, as you know, operate in different countries about productions getting their sustainability rated. And in distribution, you know, that that is for us, it's important. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The C21 team will be in Cannes bringing you all the latest news and views from MIPCOM throughout the week, so don't forget to follow us online, on mobile and social media. The podcast will be back next Friday. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.